During the height of the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union were locked in a nuclear arms race that threatened the survival of the planet. That threat appears to have receded in recent years, but a groundbreaking new report by Yahoo News this week is a powerful reminder that we are now locked in an escalating cyber war with our adversaries, in which crippling hacks and covert influence operations are increasingly becoming the norm, all conducted in the shadows. The Yahoo News exclusive disclosed that President Trump in 2018 signed a secret finding authorizing the CIA to launch offensive cyber operations on its own with no White House approval, including attacks aimed at disrupting the civil and political institutions of countries like Iran and Russia, precisely the sort of operation the Russians unleashed on us during the 2016 election. We'll talk to the lead author of that piece, Zach Dorfman, about what the dangers are that are lurking in this new era of cyber warfare. And we'll talk to New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg about our own concerns about restrictions on free speech from her ideological compatriots on the left on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, that was quite a piece uh, that Zach Dorfman and our Yahoo reporters uh, did this week about uh, this secret finding by President Trump, which really does seem to have been an important and very consequential escalation in this era of cyber warfare I was talking about. It's just what we need in these uh, dystopian times with, you know, pandemics and uh, racial strife and uh, the presidency of Donald Trump and now crossing the Rubicon in these shadowy uh, cyber wars. This is the thing that I remember, you know, you and I attending the Aspen Security Conference a a few years back that um, national security officials were worried about, that we would unleash offensive cyber warfare and end up in a kind of an arms race. You don't know where this is going to end. You know, when people talk about cyber war, a lot of people don't really make the leap from cyber, which is digital and ones and zeros and whatever, to actual destruction, things blowing up, you know, and people dying. Well, and, you um, you wrote about when you did uh, your book, uh, Kill and or Capture. Did I get the title right there? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Killer <laughs> Capture. Kill, kill or Capture about the Stuxnet cyber yeah. virus that yeah, the United yeah. States and Israelis unleashed on the Iranians to disrupt their nuclear program. That was a, a classic example of cyber warfare. Now, it was targeted. It was, you know, restricted to a particular operation, you know, the Iranian nuclear program. But it does seem that what Trump has done here has opened the door for a lot more of this on a much wider scale. 
and here's the problem. The problem is, you know, we have, you know, an overwhelming advantage over the rest of the world when it comes to conventional warfare, but we don't when it comes to cyber. And just this very week, when this story appeared, you had the story, uh, the two, two stories, one of the Russians attempting to steal our vaccine research, and then the hack of, of Twitter. And so what that underscores is that we are our defenses in this country to cyber attacks are are not that strong uh and so there is a kind of parity out there there are a lot of nation states out there that can do a lot of damage to us so it is a dangerous precedent to start going on the offensive when it comes to cyber attacks without considering the possible uh, the possibility of retaliatory strikes I think it's a very, very worrying uh, development. Totally agree. And of course, you know, the Twitter attack is pretty scary on its own. I mean, it does seem to have been this sort of cryptocurrency Bitcoin operation by a bunch of cyber criminals. But the idea, and we'll talk about this with Zach, the idea that people can get into the protected Twitter accounts of high-profile people like Obama and Biden and others really uh, opens the door to what could be some pretty frightening operations during, particularly during the last weeks of the election. But we'll talk about that with Zach. Listen, a couple of other things that are uh, worth noting here before we get to our guests. The news today that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had a a recurrence of her cancer and is undergoing chemotherapy. Now, obviously, uh, there are, you know, this is only going to heighten the concerns about whether Ginsburg can hold on until uh, January 20 when a new president is sworn in or an old president is uh, re-sworn in for a second term. Not looking terribly likely at the moment, but you never know. But uh, to me, what leapt out at this when I'm looking at Ginsburg's statement is this happened She began the chemotherapy on May 19th, so two months ago, and we're just learning about it now. We had Dahlia Lithwick on the show last week talking about how opaque the Supreme Court is about the health of the justices. This seems a pretty clear example, and I just want to know why we didn't learn about this earlier. Well, the Supreme Court has never been transparent about much at all. And they talk about the importance of preserving the court's mystery. You don't want to undermine trust in the Supreme Court as if as if there's any institution today whose trust has not been <laughs> undermined. But it's the same reason that they, you know, have always refused to have cameras in the courtroom. And, you know, I think when you're talking about a, you know, the balance of the court potentially shifting considerably. And you're talking about nine people who are among the most powerful people in this country. The fact that, uh, you know, for months and months, you know, for all this time, we, we wouldn't know that, you know, she was getting treated for cancer is really troubling. And I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just, it's same thing. Um, w- you know, we talked about this on the podcast last week that John Roberts um, had a, f- uh, a bad fall, had to go to the hospital. Uh, we only learned about that because of a, uh, a tip that, that the Washington Post got. So I think we just have to, going to have to continue reporting on the court to find out what in the world is, is going on there. But I think we should do it. 
Yeah. A couple of other items uh, just briefly uh, worth mentioning. Uh, I'm looking at the front page of the Washington Post on Friday. Many see Trump as the core cause of his campaign's woes. And uh, you know what they're talking about here is Trump uh, looking at his slumping poll numbers, which really are, you know, just cratering in ways we never expected. He dumped Brad Parscale as his campaign manager this week and replaced him with Bill Stepien. But the Trump uh, reporters write, in Trump's orbit and Republican circles, there is a growing unease and even panic over Trump's conduct as allies fret that the president who lags behind presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden in both public and private polling is free falling into a political abyss. Now, you know, as you know, I have for some weeks been saying that it is not a foregone conclusion that Trump is going to end up running for re-election. We still have a month to go before that convention in Jacksonville. It's still, uh, you know, look, it's still likely that he will, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. And I think this post report only underscores um, what I've been saying for some weeks now. Well, uh, I would say that nothing is a foregone conclusion when, when you're talking about Donald Trump. But, you know, I was deeply skeptical a few weeks back when you brought this up. But I have to say, you know, if Republicans start seeing all of these um, Senate races trending away from them and toward the Democrats, and if it looks which like it's going to be— Which they which are. They are the, yeah. Which they are. And if it looks like it's going to be a wipeout in the Senate, which it doesn't yet, it's still— it's still possible that the Republicans could hold the Senate. But if it does look like it's going to be a wipeout, I think at the very least that conversation is going to get louder and you're going to start seeing people talking about whether they should try to uh, maneuver Trump out of uh, out or of he just throws I will in the say, towel. Yeah, I, I, I will say that the thing that's kind of amused me about the Trump campaign's pivot is that and I think this goes to that Washington Post story that Trump is really the problem. You know, yes, he gets rid of or demotes Pascal and brings in Bill Stepien, and uh, they're making some kind of changes around, you know, around the edges. But then they're talking about essentially a rose garden strategy. People, some some of our older listeners will remember uh, Jimmy Carter's rose garden strategy. Actually, it began with uh, with with Gerald Ford when he was running for re-election. The idea that the president uses the uh, the power and majesty of the office to talk about policy, not not uh, travel around the country getting grubby doing politics, keep the press focused on the president and not the opponent. Well, what when they, they trot this thing out, the first policy they're announcing is Trump's going to come out there and talk about how they're going to get tough with China because of what's going on with Hong Kong. He does this 45-minute hour press conference that just was insanity. It was just this it meandering. Was all a political attack on Biden. He's using the Rose Garden, the White House, to have, you know, a, a political rally of his own. Uh, and just, the, yeah, as you say, this rambling attack on his political opponent, no public policy proposal, no public policy even being discussed. It was a pure political uh, attack. And I, I happened to be watching it, but you know, both CNN and MSNBC, you know, turned away from it. It was just too much. Obviously, they, you know, they they've gotten much more restrictive about what they air from Trump. But Fox, so I turned to Fox so I could keep listening to this insanity. And 
you know, Brett Baer, to his credit, the first thing he says after they after it ends and um, he says, well, you know, if Barack Obama had used the White House Rose Garden to make an hour long political attack on his opponent, Republicans would be howling about that. Absolutely true. But, you know, there are so many um, outrages that go on these days uh, from the White House that this one you know, just seems to be one more that uh, we can add to the column. Before we go, uh, there is one more thing that I wanted to bring up. Someone uh, that you and I worked with closely for many years uh, at Newsweek, uh, a real legend in journalism, fantastic foreign correspondent and reporter and an incredibly elegant writer, died uh, this week uh, very suddenly and very tragically. Uh, Chris Dickey, who yep. spent, a, spent a long time at the Washington Post and then at Newsweek. And um, we worked with a, a lot of great uh, journalists um, in over the course of our career, um, tons of Pulitzer Prize winners and people who brought down uh, presidents. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and will be remembered by history for all of the great work they've done. Um, but I, I, Chris is someone who really stands out to me as uh, you know, someone who's just a, a, an extraordinary mentor, an incredibly generous colleague, and a real prince of a guy. So I don't know uh, what your recollection of working with Chris is, but he just was, you know, the ultimate foreign correspondent. Uh, some, you know, he, all over the world. He was in Nicaragua, wrote a book about the Contra War. Uh, he was in Paris for years. I remember him vividly during the uh, Pr- Princess Diana days and her death. And he was like the world expert on that. But he was also the world expert on the politics of the Middle East and so much else. So, uh you're absolutely right. I've got one Chris Dickey story that I want to tell very quickly. And, and that is, you know, I worked on lots of big stories with Chris, cover stories about the Middle East, about terrorism, you know, big breaking news stories. But the one uh, that I remember the most was the one that kind of in some ways taught me the most. And he was someone who used to talk about turning little stories into bigger stories. And this was when I was in um, the Middle East bureau chief for Newsweek, and I had and and Chris was was visiting. He was doing some work there. It was right as the Camp David peace talks were collapsing, the ones that Clinton was running, not Jimmy Carter. I'm not that old. And I spent a couple of days reporting in Gaza, and I came back and I had this idea that I was going to write write this you know this big kind of think piece. This what what do we we call them thumb suckers? Um, and I had like all this reporting swirling around in my head. I, I, I didn't know what I was going to write exactly. And so I kind of sent a long memo uh, to Dickey, and he pulled out kind of a throwaway anecdote, which was about a um, Palestinian uh, shop owner who wanted to sell Palestinian flags and T-shirts to celebrate the new Palestinian state that was supposed to happen after this big peace deal happened. And of course, it never happened. And the Palestinian flags were just gathering dust on the warehouse shelves. And Chris pulled that out. He said, that's your story. And Dickie wrote the lead. And it was it was supposed to be a banner day at the Palestinian flag shop. And that was just so perfect. And that's the way. And that's (laughs) yeah. and And that was that was Dickie. Uh, and uh, I'm going to miss him a lot. And uh, he was working up to the very last day as the, the foreign editor for the Daily Beast 
uh, just a terrific reporter. And somehow, Dickie, through all of the difficulties in our profession, everyone wants to be the Paris bureau chief. Somehow, Dickie uh, managed, <laughs> to st- managed to stay in Paris through all of the trials and tribulations and the the business challenges of journalism, managed to stay in Paris. Good for him. Yeah, blocking many other reporters from getting <laughs> the right. coveted uh, Paris <laughs> yeah. bureau chief job. Including uh, including me. Yeah, including you. <laughs> all right. No wonder you remember it so well. Anyway, Chris Dickey, RIP. Um, let us get on with the guests and the show. We now have with us Zach Dorfman, senior analyst at the Aspen Institute and a Yahoo News contributor who helped break this really interesting cyber war story. Zach, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's so great to be here, as always. So quite a fascinating story here on so many levels. But basically, as I understand it, there was a secret finding signed by the president that nobody knew about it until you and your colleagues discovered it that authorized the CIA to conduct offensive cyber war actions against America's enemies. How significant is this and what sort of cyber warfare are we talking about? Well, I think it's it's quite significant for a lot of reasons. Um, what this finding, which uh, our sources said was signed in 2018, allowed CIA to do was for the first time it provided broad legal authority for them to commit uh, offensive cyber operations between a number of countries and in a number of different ways before it had to be adjudicated on an ad hoc process that would go through the uh, National Security Council. But what this finding did was it devolved those authorities downward to CIA itself. So when CIA now is thinking about taking certain kinds of offensive cyber actions, they don't necessarily have to go through this very long process that would go through Deputies Committee and the Principals Committee at the NSC um, under the Obama administration, which, you know, some people look at this as a positive, others look at it um, as a negative. It was a very lawyerly process during that administration. And what it allows CIA to do is it allows them to more easily commit actions that range from things that you would think of as edging into cyber war, cyber sabotage, the sorts of things that became famous with the the Stuxnet virus, and then also things that you could consider cyber, this is a technical term, right? Um, Cyber-enabled covert action. And that's things like hacking and dumping, hacking a Russian intelligence unit's tools and dumping them on the internet through a a WikiLeaks-type entity. Sort of like what the Russians did to us in 2016. Exactly. In fact, you have a uh, delicious quote from a former intelligence official who is outraged by this finding and these new powers that the CIA has been given, saying that uh, the U.S. government is turning into uh, fucking WikiLeaks. So is that a bit of hyperbole or what is the fear here? I mean, I think there's there's there was some hyperbole in the statement. I think that that, that person, I would say more than outraged, it might be cynical and disabused. And there is a sense, though, that 
there is a worry, I think, and I think it's a totally legitimate worry, that by participating in these sorts of actions, you lose, you are engaging in a sort of a dangerous game of moral equivalence, right? Because if you are decrying what the Russians are doing or have done in 2016, and yet CIA is also executing parallel campaigns elsewhere, but doing it in a way, doing it secretly, so the American public isn't aware that the CIA engages in these types of activities, then it makes us look hypocritical and doesn't accurately speak to the kind of evolving international environment in um, cyber espionage and cyber war. And the CIA, according to your reporting, has already been using these, uh, these authorities and actually launching cyber attacks under this finding, correct? And tell us well, what specifically you learned uh, in that regard. Yes. Yeah, so according to our understanding, there have been about a dozen, a dozen such actions since this finding was signed uh, in 2018 that were done under these new powers or, or were accelerated under them. And they have uh, involved everything from things blowing up infrastructure, sizzling out or fizzling out to these types of um, hack and dump operations. Our sources would not confirm specific instances of those occurring, but there have been a number of cases in the public sphere that point pretty strongly to the very types of things that this new finding allowed CIA to do, including there's been a great deal of um, degrading and destructive attacks on Iranian infrastructure in the last few weeks that have made a lot of public attention. There have been um, release of banking data from Iranian banks, some of which were known to have worked with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. And there was also a hack and dump of a private company that was doing work for the FSB, the Russian intelligence agency, the FSB. And these are all the types of things that CIA is now allowed to be doing. And in some instances, again, our sources didn't specify which, but said, yes, there have been these types of things that have happened. You know, I got to say, Zach, you know, in other contexts, a finding like this would seem to sort of loosen the restrictions on cyber attacks, giving the authority to the CIA to decide on its own, not having to go through these kind of reviews, legal reviews that would ultimately be decided by the president of the United States. But in the current context, um, should we be more unsettled that the CIA is making these decisions than the current occupant of the Oval Office, who one would think would be much more trigger happy than, you know, those uh, deep state operatives over at Langley? No, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. And, you know, I think the larger context of, of this shift is about policy. It's also about process and individual personality. So a finding under a less dysfunctional administration that allowed CIA to do certain things might be less worrisome. And, you know, conversely, you might have a situation where, you know, as you say, you would prefer to have those authorities devolved to CIA to take out whatever potential political thinking that might go into doing certain things or not doing certain things, especially as we know, given the administration's kind of ten, tenuous and, and bizarre relationship to certain, you know, to, to the Russian thing. And, and by that, by the way, I want to be fair. That's not the, the NSC kind of hawkish traditionalists under the Trump administration. That's the president himself. So, you know, in that case, you might want to have the professional bureaucrats in the CIA actually figuring out what's a good strategy to execute vis-a-vis -vis offensive cyber operations with Russia. 
On the other hand, I mean, there are plenty of examples where this president has not been trigger happy and has pulled back at the last minute to the surprise of a lot of people. And he does seem to have this reticence to get involved in wars, maybe coming from a very different place from Obama, but it's in some ways the same result. But one of the things I want to ask you about, and, and speaking of Obama, my recollection is that in that period, part of the reason that Obama wanted to keep the reins to himself and not you know, unleash the CIA. This was true when it came to drones as well, but particularly with cyber weapons was there was this kind of red line that policymakers drew between certain kinds of cyber warfare, you know, sort of offensive versus defensive. And the red line was we just weren't doing you know, you cross that line into offensive cyber war, and it becomes very hard to control. And it's also the case that unlike, you know, with traditional warfare and, and you know, kind of kinetic warfare, we didn't necessarily have the clear advantage that we did with, you know, a lot of other countries when it came to cyber. So to me, I thought that was one of the interesting things about your story, that we've just kind of blew, we've blown past that line. I think that this is a very difficult and, and worrisome question because there's a couple things going on. One, you know, you have covert action and sabotage on the one hand, and you could look at it as discrete. Like, again, if you look at the Stuxnet operation that slowed down Iran's nuclear program, now that's a that was a discrete action that affected a facility, right? You know, centrifuges are no longer spinning the way they're supposed to be spinning. But if you open it up that aperture a little bit more, and all of a sudden you're talking about shutting down an entire electric grid, or even an electric grid for part of a city where you're you're dealing, you know, you are disabling hospitals as well as military facilities, you start edging into something that looks a lot like war. And one of the things that we also, you know, heard from our sources about this new finding was that it really loosened the ability for CIA to potentially alter or disrupt financial institutions. And that has always been pushed back very heavily against by particularly folks in the Treasury Department who are worried about the stability of the international financial system. And when you talk about asymmetry, which is what your point spoke to, there are other very, very capable adversarial services out there that can theoretically hack into American banks. And if all of a sudden Citibank finds out, looks one day and everything just says zero, 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 or people's banking information is all of a sudden dumped onto the internet, it just speaks to our inability potentially to be able to control the, you know, the reverberations or knock-on effects of the things that we do abroad. So yeah, that's very worrisome. Well, you know, look, the other point to make here is the timing of your piece probably could not have been better because it came in the same week we learn that the Russians are hacking into vaccine research in the UK and the United States, stealing critical technology to deal with the coronavirus. And and then right on top of that, we have this incredible hack of Twitter in which uh, the Twitter accounts of former President Obama, Joe Biden and a lot of other major figures were hacked for some sort of cryptocurrency scheme. We don't fully understand who did this yet. I think uh, the FBI and Twitter are trying to find out, but it just underscored just how wild this new era of cyber war is? Um, it, 
you know, those those are both very disturbing for different reasons. I'd say the, the Russian case was interesting because it's medical espionage, right? It's not surprising that they would be doing it. It's not surprising that the Chinese are doing it. It's just the stakes are so high right now with the potential COVID-19 vaccine and the first mover advantages for the state or the states that will develop those vaccines and roll them out will have massive soft power effects as well as just, you know, effects on the ability for that country to lift itself off its feet. And what I thought was interesting about it, frankly, was the fact that there was public disclosure by, I think, the UK was the country that led that um, the disclosure. And it reminded me of something that a, a former senior national security official said to me. They said, you got to argue for the things that you don't do. And that means that the US doesn't commit the kind of economic espionage that the Russians or the Chinese do. So you can establish and push it back against that. And that's kind of what you're seeing, I think, with that announcement. But there's no doubt that the Chinese in particular and the Russians, and frankly, probably some of our, our allies too, who, who also do more, have a tradition of committing economic espionage like the French, are probably very much engaged in doing that kind of stuff. Are, are you sure that we're not committing that kind of economic espionage. I know traditionally we haven't, but I do wonder about with the, under this president who is so transactional and who thinks that uh, you know other countries are always eating our lunch, whether this would be something that he would be in favor of. I have no inside information yeah. uh, about it. Would be, it, would, it would signal a major shift in American espionage policy, right? I mean, if you even look at it again, if you look at it from you know, even our allies like the French, right? I mean, traditionally what they do, and the Israelis too, is they'll do economic espionage and then they will pass on information to their national yeah. champion companies yeah. to yeah. give them advantages. Yeah. And we just don't have that tradition, but who yeah. knows yeah. how that works. By the way, uh, another thing that I thought was fascinating about your piece, and you mentioned the point about banks, but that uh, this finding, one of the things it did was to kind of lower the evidentiary threshold for going after organizations that are not traditionally thought of as being military targets. So, you know, media organizations, uh, religious institutions, charitable organizations, as long as there is some connection to the state or the, the, the military. How big a deal is that? And what do you think the kind of risk of abusing that new authority is? So I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's a part of the story that has not in the public reaction to it, I have not seen a lot of discussion around it. And I think it's a really, really important part of it. Because what it means is that, you know, first of all, it's a reaction to the fact that as espionage has evolved in the 21st century, there are fewer of these traditional outlets doing this work um, the same way. And there's been a move much more toward these cutouts, right? So, you know, in the old days, I mean, and still today, but, you know, you have like TASS, right, or a Russian state media organization. And there were always KGB officers, you know, who were under media cover under TASS. But as time has gone on, you have these private organizations, these charities, these, you know, these non-state affiliated media organizations, religious institutions that have people who are either intelligence officers or intelligence assets working for them. But you know, from what our reporting indicates is that, you know, there used to be, uh, you used to have to really be able to prove that somebody or an organization was working for a foreign government. And now that's largely out the window. And again, remember, we're not talking about spying. This, this finding is not about spying per se. It is about 
covert action. And that means that you're going to be doing things to that person or that organization that have real world effects. That might be wiping a server, that might be creating coincidences in that person's life or in the lives of the people that surround them that make them do certain things without them realize they are being compelled by a foreign intelligence service. So every time you make targeting easier for somebody. You're creating concentric circles around that target that then allow that those people to also have their lives secretly guided or affected by intelligence services in certain ways to produce certain outcomes. So yeah, I mean, there are some really big civil liberties, civil rights questions for people, um, especially if we're talking about such a lower bar for, well, for evidence. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, and also, I mean, given the way you know, a lot of countries and regimes out there regard our media. They don't see a distinction between the New York Times and, you know, and, and the U.S. government. I think it opens ourselves up to attacks from, you know, from foreign rivals. So it seems like a, a pretty slippery slope. Just uh, if I could follow up on that, Zach, because I want to get back to the Twitter attack, because in, in some ways, to me, that's the most frightening of them all. You know, we have been talking for months about potential disruptions to the election by the Russians or other foreign adversaries. And usually it was in the context of either doing the same sort of thing, dumping documents that they did, the Russians did last time, or possibly getting into election databases, which they tried to do in 2016. But the idea that you could do something like what happened to Twitter during the election season opens up all sorts of possibilities for disruptions of our election that we hadn't really been focused on. I'm looking at the New York Times account today in which they give a couple of examples of what could play out given the Twitter attack. False warnings of a coronavirus outbreak in key precincts in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania could have untold impact on a close vote in a battleground state. Somebody gets into Twitter and does just that suggests there's been a huge outbreak of uh, Twitter, but uh, outbreak of coronavirus. But the other one, imagine a fake declaration under Joe Biden's account that he was dropping out of the race, a nightmare scenario for Democrats that some federal officials said they were talking about hypothetically among themselves as recently as Wednesday night. So if somebody can get into the Twitter accounts of people like Biden, what is to stop foreign adversaries from doing something like that on the eve of the election? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. nothing. And I think that to make that, I mean, to, to just underline your statement, it appears, unless there's some kind of false flagging going on, which doesn't, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. There's been some very good reporting from the Times and also from Vice about the people behind this. This was a, you know, th these were a group of cyber criminals, right? And cyber criminals are very, very capable but it's not the Chinese or Russian intelligence service level of capability. So if some cyber criminals who wanted to make money via a, bit, a Bitcoin scam could completely upend Twitter for 24 hours and hack into the accounts of some of the most prominent public figures in American life, then what can the Russians or the Chinese do within a 24 uh, or 48 hour spin if they if they actually decide to execute in that way? I don't know if that's part of their developing strategy. My sense 
from reading some of the recent literature, particularly on the Russians, is that they're more involved in the, the longer term kind of influence operations and disinformation operations. But it's not an either or, right? You can have that longer term campaign, which then has an acute dimension in the last week or so before the election. And let's not forget that we have evidence of foreign government penetration of Twitter. We had a criminal case just last year with the uh, FBI charging Saudi, Saudi officials of hiring spies who penetrated Twitter, who were inside Twitter, sucking up personal data on Twitter accounts who in the Saudis case, they were worried about dissidents like Jamal Khashoggi and some of his friends, what they were writing in some cases on anonymous Twitter accounts. My point is, we do have evidence that foreign adversaries or in the Saudis case, allies have gotten into Silicon Valley for their own purposes. And if the Saudis can do it, I rather suspect that Russians and the Chinese could do it as well. I mean, without a question, and that is a, it's kind of a key development in 21st century espionage, whereas, you know, in the, in the, in the last century, intelligence officers and, and operatives were focused, you know, largely in Washington, D.C. and New York. That's still very much the case, obviously. But you want an outlook, if you can, you want a, an, an asset or an intelligence officer in every major tech company in Silicon Valley. I mean, why wouldn't you? The access to data is profound. The ability to understand the future of technology is profound. It is. I have no doubt that it is a core part of the, the strategy of both hostile and um, many friendly intelligence services. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, friendly intelligence services, but also uh, we've been focused on foreign actors. But let's remember that uh, increasingly there are, you know, the threat may be coming from domestic bad actors. And so I think we can't discount that possibility. But I wanted to kind of end on a political question for you. And I know that politics is not your beat, but just stick with me for a second here. After your piece ran, Dick Clark, the legendary former uh, counterterrorism czar in the Bush administration and cyber terrorism expert who's written many books and novels about cyber, got in touch because he thought it was a really important piece that you guys did. And he made an interesting point, which he wrote about on Yahoo News, which is this is a an example of something that we see in national security all the time, which is the pendulum, which maybe had swung a little too far in one direction, has now swung way too far in the opposite direction. So the point that he was making was that maybe Obama, you know, kind of had restrained the CIA too much in the area of cyber you know, kind of put the handcuffs on. But now Trump has overcorrected in ways that are very dangerous and potentially open the CIA up to abuses and excess. So my question is, if Joe Biden wins the election, would you imagine that the pendulum would swing back? Or do you think that that in the cyber area, we maybe are moving towards some kind of a equilibrium here as to what the policies ought ought to be? Well, I mean, my sense is that there'll probably be some kind of like a thesis antithesis synthesis going on. It's known as the Hege- by the way, that's known as the Hegelian dialectic, for, for, <laughs> which is uh, you know something that our skullduggery listeners are really interested in. So I just have to point well, that out. Well, well, let's also remind people that Karl Marx adopted that. Yeah, that might be for, that might be yeah. the more relevant antecedent here. I will happily come back and muddle my way through a conversation on Hegel. Um, <laughs> 
We'll we'll have a lot of listeners for that one, Zach. <laughs> right? Yeah, undergrad philosophy um, podcast. Um, so, which is the last time I thought about Hegel? But my sense is that you. So there was a, a a degree of consensus within the IC and even within pol- most policymaking circles, nonpartisan policymaking circles, that the Obama administration was too restrictive, and that there was going to be a course corrective, and in fact. The catalyst for the finding was the Obama administration, to some extent, and Mike, you you did a lot of reporting on this, um, trying to figure out how to respond to the Russian interference scheme in, in 2016. And they never quite got there by the time Obama left, but it really kickstarted a lot of the discussions around this, which again had been going on for a very, very long time and had to do with I, I guess, you know, some very complex discussions on legal authorities and military versus CIA and all this other kinds of stuff. But then what you have under Trump is a unique combination of a of a president who is entirely, completely ignorant of these debates or the nuances behind them with a number of very, very, very hawkish national security officials, including but not limited to John Bolton, who comes in and and seems to get all of these things codified, things that had been developing quite rapidly under McMaster when he was national security advisor. And I think what we'll see is a bit of a course correction back toward more control and oversight, but I don't think it will ever go back to the Obama days. And my sense is that because of that, we're going to see a world where these kinds of covert actions in cyberspace become a more common feature of just the international environment. And the real question for me is how much of it is disclosed to the American people so that the American people know that sometimes things that seem like attacks are in fact retaliation, right? Because if we're only being given half of the picture, which is that we are under attack by X, Y, and Z, but we're never actually informed about the fact that our own intelligence services are engaging in this behavior, then we're not gonna be able to make clear decisions or have a clear understanding of the kind of wider environment in which our own government is operating. Yeah, or listen, uh, conversely, if the Iranians uh, attack us uh, through in cyber, is it because they're retaliating for something we did in secret to them, which would be probably be important information to know and understand in evaluating what the uh, how to respond to what the Iranians did. Hey, one quick question. You mentioned John Bolton. Uh, This finding was signed in 2018 while he was national security advisor. Do we know if Bolton was the driver for this finding? I don't know it for a fact. I think you can make a strong inferential judgment that it was based on um, what he writes about and alludes to in his recent book, where he talks about getting cyber done. And he he mentions, there's a couple words that he uses in his book he talks about clandestine. He talks about military and clandestine operations in cyberspace, especially targeting terrorists and other non-state actors. I believe, and that other non-state actors is a very pregnant phrase. I mean, when I read it, I thought to myself, okay, well, this clearly seems to allude to the kinds of things that CIA was allowed to do, and also the clandestine actions, because you know, it's not just. If you're talking about things that aren't just in a military context about striking back, 
that's when you get into espionage and covert action. Yeah, yeah, one wonders if that was some of the classified information the government claimed was in Bolton's book. Um, but Zach, uh, great reporting as always and great discussion. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. We now have with us Michelle Goldberg, the New York Times columnist who has waded into one of the most sensitive subjects around these days, the whole debate over cancel culture. Michelle, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your latest piece to progressives have a free speech problem, because I thought it was one of the more nuanced writings on this extremely sensitive subject. And you seemed, I got to say, a little tortured yourself in writing about it. But maybe I'm uh, taking things too far. Tell us what prompted the column and the point that you're trying to make here. Well, if you don't mind, so I might like kind of be a little bit oblique here. I mean, I'll, I'll try to answer your question, but first I'll tell you what prompted the column. So as I explained, I mean, it's been, you know, kind of mordantly funny to me that this is all a debate about what you called cancel culture, because as I wrote in the column, when somebody came to me with the rough draft of this letter that has sparked this huge freak out, I initially refused to sign because it talked about cancel culture. And I sent them an email that I'll quote, I said, you know, cancel culture, while it describes something real, has been rendered sort of useless because it's so often used by right wing whiners like Ivanka Trump, who think protests against them violate their free speech. So then a little later, they came back to me again with a different version that didn't talk about cancel culture. And I, I guess I wasn't the only one who had objected to that phrase. And, you know, I sort of thought to myself that, like, honestly, this is unobjectionable. And the only reason that I am hesitating to sign is because I'm, you know, a little bit intimidated of what the reaction is going to be, which is a signal that I should probably just put my name on it. You know, I have very little to lose compared to other people who, right, I think I'm a hard, I've, like, gotten myself to a point in life where I'm just a harder person to cancel. <laughs> and so you're a um, columnist for the New York Times. Well, we'll see <laughs> how much profile. God knows we'll see how, how long that, lasts that gives you. Right. Yeah, but um, you know, so I thought, whatever. This is this is like a this is a, this is a very minor act of bravery and <laughs> being asked for. So you know, so I put my name on it, and then there was this big, I think, an even bigger sort of uproar over it than I had expected. And I think I was torn about weighing in for a couple of reasons. I mean, partly. You know, like anyone, you don't want to wade into the buzzsaw. But then there was also this meta question of, you know, I sort of signed this thing, but there's a reason I don't write about this stuff a lot. And it's actually not that I'm intimidated because I used to write about this kind of stuff all the time. You know, I've written about it for The Nation. I've written about it for The New Yorker. I've written about it for lots of different places, like kind of varieties of left-wing illiberalism and left-wing infighting. And the reason I don't really write about it now is because it's so minor to me compared to, you know the intolerable and overwhelming threat of Donald Trump and incipient fascism, pandemic, economic meltdown, right? I mean, it just seems so trivial compared to these huge world historical catastrophes bearing down on us. But but Michelle, let, let me just stop you right there, because in your world, this is a very big deal. 
I mean, you had your editor at the New York Times lose his job over these issues. You had one of your colleagues, Barry Weiss, just resigned from the New York Times this week over these issues. So, yes, in the grand cosmic, you know, Donald Trump presidency, it may seem like not the number one uh, issue of our day, but it is a big issue in the world you live in and in the world that we live in of, you know, political debate in this country. Right. But I feel like this is this almost this goes to almost my conflict about what is the role of a columnist at this time, because I, I actually feel like there can sometimes be a real conflict between what is intellectually interesting and what is important in a way that I don't know existed in the same way before Donald Trump. And I think that actually part of the generation gap here is that people my age and older grew up with a model of journalism and debate. And I, I still have it to some extent, right, where you don't want to write the obvious thing. You want to write the counterintuitive thing, the surprising thing, the provocative thing. And I, you know, I think you should try to do that sometimes. But I don't know if that is the right approach for this moment of all out emergency. Right. And so that's something I sort of wrestle with as a columnist and that has changed my writing and, you know, and and maybe made my writing worse. But again, I just think that at this moment of emergency, sort of, you know, what I've called in the past, this kind of debating club approach to these urgent matters is maybe not the right approach. So again, so I went sort of back and forth, back and forth. But then I started to think that, you know, I was just kind of using that as an excuse not to do this piece that was going to make everybody mad at me. So I should just go ahead and do it and then go back to writing about Armageddon. Well, so Michelle, and I do want to get to whether people got mad at you and, and about the sort of backlash more generally. But I think it'd be useful just to kind of state clearly what your larger concern is, because as Mike said, you did it in a very nuanced way, and I think that would be useful for our audience. My sense is is that you are concerned about a kind of left-wing illiberalism, a sort of narrowing of what is considered acceptable speech, and that if you go beyond those boundaries, you risk being on one end, you know, sort of socially ostracized or maybe shamed online, but on the other end of, of the extreme, perhaps losing your job and your life. And that's what concerns me, I want to say, right? Because so I've written about this subject for a long time. I mean, I think I wrote the, a piece about rising left-wing illiberalism for the first time in 2014. And it's something that's been happening with the advent of social media for a while. It sort of reaches certain heights, then recedes for a while. And, you know, and it's also not unique to this moment, right? It, in a lot of ways, you know, was the downfall of some really important movements in the late 60s and 70s. It flared up again in the 90s. Um, Something I've been thinking about is that, forgive my digressions, but, you know, people have made this argument that, you know, a lot of people who signed this Harper's letter are old (laughs) and that it's like a get off my lawn letter. And I'm sure that that's part of it, right? That like every generation of people on the left is destined to disapprove of the next one. But I also think that if you've just if you're old enough, you've just seen this before, right? You've seen these cycles before and you've seen that they always end really badly. What I would say is that, you know, you're not being oppressed or silenced if you get really ugly 
Twitter pushback or even if you get socially ostracized, right? It, I mean, it's really painful, but, you know, it's also that in itself is kind of a form of, of speech. And so, you know, I don't really like it, but I don't think that I would use the real estate in the New York Times to say, don't send me mean tweets. And I also I think that, you know, if you're again, if you're if you're, you know, in your 40s or a little bit older, you've sort of grew up reading this kind of post totalitarian literature where you saw this certain mode of discourse as a hallmark of, of totalitarianism. And then you see it again online, you know, like if you're online, you get to sort of simultaneously experience the rhetorical modes of Stalinism and McCarthyism. Except the thing that made Stalinism and McCarthyism bad wasn't the rhetorical modes, right? It was the it was the power of the state. And so I think it's possible to sort of overreact to really annoying tweets and see in them a totalitarian menace that that isn't there. Where I think things get really dangerous and cross a line is this demand that the human resources department act as the enforcer for these rapidly changing new norms of speech and debate. Right. And I'm not there's I don't want to talk a lot about what goes on in the New York Times. I mean, suffice to say, I loved working for James Bennett and was very sad about what happened to him. But it's obviously not just the New York Times that you see people losing their jobs, sometimes for clumsy mistakes, sometimes for things that don't even seem like mistakes, like David Shore's tweet. And so to me, that's what that's what I wanted to take aim at is the idea that it is somehow a left wing value to weaponize the fact that we have extremely precarious labor markets to punish people for political disagreements. I want to say uh, the David Shore example, which you write about in the piece, which I was not aware of, I found pretty shocking. Now, this guy is a was a data analyst at a progressive consulting firm, Civis Analytics. He retweets a tweet from a Princeton professor that shows a link between violent protests in the 60s and Richard Nixon's election, something that seems pretty obvious to me, um, having lived through it. And the guy gets fired. And I was really I, I was astonished. Yeah, it's bananas. Your column. Yeah, it's real. It's it's bananas. And I think you can see some of the things that people were tweeting at him. You know, New York Magazine has published this some of the internal messages from this industry listserv that he got kicked off of, you know, and it really is millennial Kafka, right? Like it's it's nuts. Um, and there's actually a fascinating long interview with him in New York Magazine right now, right? Because this is an incredibly brilliant person and a significant person in democratic politics. And when you see his sort of like deeply thoughtful and sometimes really counterintuitive ideas, you know, backed up by a lot of data and research about what works in democratic politics, um, you know, why white working class movements have gravitated to right wing populists, you know, not just here, but in Europe, right? This is someone who it's a loss not to have to, if somebody like this feels muzzled or if somebody like this feels like their research or their sort of unpopular ideas might offend someone. I just want to understand the logic here that's going on, because when you go through the logic, it, se it seems to me that this gets even more frightening. The idea is that showing a linkage between violent protest and presumably a, a, a backlash among voters that helps 
get somebody like Richard Nixon elected president can be used against people who are protesting about what happened to George Floyd or police brutality. And therefore, we shall not ever dare mention that uh, people could react negatively to violent protests. I, I, I find, I don't know, am I, do I have it? Do I have the logic right here? Wasn't it also that uh, people felt that uh, they were endangered by a tweet like this? Wasn't that part of the argument? People did say that they were endangered, which, How which so? again, I can't, so I, I feel a little weird being in the position of trying to kind of ventriloquize, ventriloquize <laughs> an argument that I think is ridiculous. I'm probably not going to represent it accurately. There's probably people who could represent it more sensitively. Like you guys should go and read some of the tweets of the people who were calling for his firing. I think they were really, really wrong and bad, but I'm not, but I think that if I try to explain them, I'll end up parodying them. I will say that, you know, I talked to Omar Wasso, who is the person who wrote the paper, the Princeton professor who wrote the paper that David Shore got in trouble for tweeting out. And, and in, so this didn't make it into my piece, but a point that he made is that there was, you know, people were sort of mourning. It was this moment of like intense heightened emotion and there was like this just disconnect by someone coming to them with data that it seemed somehow cold or insensitive to their pain but I do also think that there is you know there's a taboo against using the word riot and there's a taboo against sort of making judgments about property destruction or violent versus nonviolent protest well, I mean, that seems on its face a pretty sharp restriction on democratic debate. Yeah, I don't um, think it's great. I mean, that's yeah. not good. I mean, look, this week we had, as I mentioned before, your colleague, Barry Weiss, resigning from The New York Times. I noticed that she had signed the same letter you did. How do you feel about the resignation of your colleague? Leave aside the internal dynamics of the Times. You know, she's been somebody who's been quite vocal uh, and outspoken and articulate. And she was a colleague of yours. I, I mean, do you feel that the arguments she made and, you know, they were pretty powerfully stated in that letter that, you know, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. And she talks about the very cultural phenomenon you're you're writing about. You know, did she have a point? So I think that she had a point, but it's more complicated than that. Um, there's a piece in Arc Digital that I thought was really good, which is that something that I think frustrates people on the left and which I have some sympathy to about people who sort of hold themselves up as, as free speech defenders and yet also are kind of willing to prescribe the speech of people that they really disagree with. Right. So one of the things that has really frustrated people about Barry, for example, is her attitude towards pro-Palestinian speech and, towards, you know, the advocacy of causes that I think she holds in contempt. And I don't think it's it's just her, right? I will say this. I disagree with Barry about a lot. Um, I would have found it extremely hard to work in a place where I was excoriated the way she was. So I think that 
in some cases she was really brave and in some cases she was really, really wrong. Michelle, I want to ask you to sort of peer into the future a little bit and give us a sense of of what you think the trajectory of this debate may be, given that you talked before about how these debates have come in in sort of cycles. And I wonder the extent to which you think that what is happening now has been you know, so exacerbated by the Trump presidency, by, you know, the kind of deep polarization, all of the racial issues that have been heightened by, obviously, by what, you know, the police brutality, uh, but also the rhetoric of this president and people around him. And so is it possible that this is uh, something that do you think will revert back after, say, a Biden presidency starts and um, he's a Uh, kind of a a quieter presence on the national stage? Or do you think it's going to continue the way it has? What is your sense of that? So I am reluctant to make predictions. I mean, I think it's obviously been exacerbated by Trump in a couple of ways. One is just that it is harder to sort of talk primly about liberal norms when this administration, you know, kind of just like desecrates them. Um, it's I think it's harder to convince young people that these norms are worth protecting and maybe reanimating, right? When everything seems, when the system seems so rotten that I think if I was in my 20s, I would probably think that you need to just start over and, and build something new. And that, you know, the, the norms that had protected a kind of elite style debate were just, you know, hypocritical ways for people to shield themselves from accountability, right? I don't believe that, but I understand why people look around at the ruins of this country and and think that that's the case. The other way that I think Donald Trump has made this much worse, not just Trump, but Trumpism, is that they have twisted the phrase free speech to mean a sort of unapologetic bigotry, right? Like when I would go to Trump rallies in 2016, I talked to people all the time who were really angry about political correctness. And, you know, when I asked them what they what they wanted to say that they couldn't say, you know, it wasn't that they were confused about pronouns. They were, you know, mad that they couldn't use out and out racial slurs. And so I and I think that you have, you know, a whole sort of far right movement that insists that it's free speech is violated when it can't speak in openly racist ways without social opprobrium. And and this isn't new. Um, In my piece, I wrote about Ellen Willis, who described a similar phenomenon in the 90s when there was also a lot of contention about free speech and what people then called political correctness. But again, I think that, you know, because Trump and Trumpism just like poisons everything it touches when they talk about free speech, they almost make all free speech arguments seem bad faith. Like, as I wrote, they've almost turned free speech or they've tried. I think they're close to turning free speech into something like all lives matter. A, you know, a phrase that immediately invokes like bad faith bigotry. And I, and that's what I am afraid of happening and what I don't want to happen because free speech, to my mind, properly belongs to the left. Right. And obviously there is no more direct threat, or at least it's obvious to me that there's no more direct threat to free expression in this country 
than a president that tries to use the power of the state to punish journalism organizations that displease him that right now, as we speak, has federal agents, you know, grabbing protesters off the street in in Portland, you know, that that kind of gassed people or that sent the military out with tear gas um, for a photo op. So, again, I think, you know, in the same way that. I am like, I really want to see the schools reopen. This is a slightly different issue. I really want to see the schools reopen. And I feel like as soon as Donald Trump started demanding that the schools reopen, the kind of political momentum turned very hard against that, at least in blue America. I think something similar happens the more Donald Trump pretends that he owns the mantle of free speech. What do you mean when you say free speech properly belongs to the left? Well, don't you think that free speech was, you know, a left wing cause that it was? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think it was a left wing cause. It was a right wing cause. It's an American cause. It's it's core to our values as a country, which embraces both people on the left and right. I don't in, for a second see it as a something that belongs to the left. I, well, No, I think that it has been the left historically that has been the defenders of free speech and free expression. Right. I mean, if you look at, you know. It was it was the ACLU. It wasn't the Federalist Society that's been fighting all these fights for free speech, you know, including the speech of people that liberals despise. Maybe there are kind of historical touchstones that you can point to of conservatives trying to expand the legal scope for free expression. But I just don't know what they are. The only point I'm making is that, you know, free speech belongs to all of us. And yes, the left has been at the forefront, you know, through the ACLU, although not exclusively. I think you can find plenty of you just go back and look at Supreme Court decisions, which didn't come from the left. You know, you had conservative justices who took some pretty hard lines on um, expanding freedom of speech, uh, even pre Sullivan. You can find that. But I, it was something the way, way you said that that I think you're probably going to get some flack for because it's a value we should all embrace. And I think most of your conservative colleagues at The New York Times, I think, would be as forceful advocates for free speech as you are. No, I think that I think that that's right. I just mean that free speech, again, has historically been, you know, in the same way that all sorts of the fight for human freedom more generally has, I think, been a left wing cause, you know, the fight for expanded rights for women, for black people. I tend to see the fight to expand free expression as part of the larger fight for human freedom, which to me has been, you know, one of the raison d'etre of the left. Okay, I want to be prescriptive for a moment here. What do we do about the current situation that we're in beyond writing excellent nuanced columns in the New York Times or signing letters put out by magazines that uh, not very many Americans read? And I guess I want to come back to your point about HR departments, not talking either about the New York Times' HR department or, or ours, Verizon Media's, but... What could, you know, American corporations and their HR departments, for example, do differently? Is the point that there needs to be more tolerance for the kinds of mistakes that people might well, I just make think sometimes? you need better unions, right? I don't I mean, I don't think that it's I, I think you need an end to now that's employment, a left wing cause. Right. I'll I mean, I think that, that. <laughs> you know, and people on the left have made this argument that, oh, well, if you're so worried about, you know, quote unquote, cancel culture, then you should strengthen labor protections. And 
I think that that's right. I mean, I don't think it's right that as long as you don't have that labor protect those labor protections, you should then sort of try to weaponize HR departments. But obviously, the way if you're worried about people being fired for capricious reasons, it's to strengthen legal protections against that happening. Okay, but the labor movement is at a historic low in terms of its influence and power. Maybe that's changing a little bit, but not not much. So in the meantime, I guess my question is, should HR departments not be capricious in terms of like termination decisions? And instead, should there be a culture of teaching and counseling in American corporations that doesn't exist right now? I mean, if, of course there should, although I don't even know if count teaching and counseling is the right way to put it, because, you know, sometimes some of these things, again, are mistakes that maybe some, you know, sending to somebody to some sort of workshop would make them think about in a different way. But sometimes it's people just being fired for disagreements and sending them to some sort of through some sort of bureaucratic reeducation process. I don't know if that's the answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. the answer is for. HR departments and corporations to be more risk averse and not right, right. But, you know, but, but I don't know that to say that cororporations should be less concerned about day-to-day PR is to me that feels more utopian than saying let's change labor law. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little about the uh, uh, national emergency we're in, in the uh, what looks to be like the last year of the uh, Trump presidency, at least according to the polls. But I'm asking on a day that we learn the news that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, mm. has a recurrence of her cancer and is um, taking chemotherapy. So... I just want to play out a scenario here and get your thinking about it. Let's assume that there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court between now and next January 20. And um, Mitch McConnell uh, and Donald Trump decide to um, do the opposite of what they did with uh, Merrick Garland, uh, refusing what McConnell did with Merrick Garland, refused to have him a vote. Trump nominates a conservative justice to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He could even do that after he loses the election in November. There's a lame duck Senate. And Mitch McConnell decides to push that through while he still has the votes. What would be the appropriate response from people on your side of the political divide to such a scenario? I mean, I think, you know, maybe mass protest on a scale that we have not yet seen, right? I mean, we've seen, I think, again and again, protests. You know, first we had the Women's March, where the, which were the biggest protests ever up until that time. I think those have now been exceeded by these Black Lives Matter protests. And I think that if you, I would like to think that, you know, in such a situation, you would have people in the streets and mass once again. And I think one of the things that we've seen with these most recent Black Lives Matter protests is how protests can work, right? Is how they can, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I am sure. I, I don't think they would stop Mitch McConnell from, I'm trying to think of a non-obscene way to describe what Mitch McConnell would do to the future of democracy, right? But I mean, I don't think that they would stop him. But you know, you never know. I mean, the, even the protests around Justice Kavanaugh 
you know, at least bought people a week, right, when those investigations were going on. And, and Jeff Flake voted to continue the investigation for one week. And so, you know, it would certainly deserve a, a mass uprising were they to sort of... The, look, the problem that we've had... It's a big problem in this country and that and it has been, I think, highlighted by the nightmare of the Trump administration is minority rule. You know, that you had minority president for the second time in, you know, what two decades, that you have a Senate controlled by a small minority of the country that is able to, you know, put people onto a Supreme Court that will again, sort of rule against the interests of the majority. I mean, I think there's, for obvious reasons, the Constitution is like, has been written such a way as to head off a tyranny of the majority. What we have now is a tyranny of the minority. And if, if Donald Trump were able to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, were able to deal the death blow to Roe versus Wade, you know, sort of a preemptive death blow to any kind of big sweeping economic legislation that a Biden administration would need to pass in order to shore up a quickly failing economy and a, um, you know, catastrophically failing healthcare system. Right. I think if the democratic process fails in giving people a way to address that, then the way to address that is through mass nonviolent action. Okay. I've got, uh, one more political question for you. And this one has the benefit of, uh, allowing us to tout your podcast, uh, your New York Times <laughs> podcast. Thank the you. Ar- w- the Argument, which I am a close listener to. It's a terrific podcast. I believe I saw on my iTunes feed this morning that your latest podcast includes an interview with Tammy Duckworth. That's right. So, all right. So this is the Veep Stakes question. I, I think on a previous podcast, your co-host, Frank Bruni, essentially endorsed Tammy Duckworth as uh, the the person that uh, Joe Biden should pick to be his running mate. I don't remember uh, whether you agreed with him. I don't think you did. But uh, tell us about your interview with uh, Tammy Duckworth. Tell us what you think of her as a potential running mate for Joe Biden or anyone else who you think would be the right person for Biden to choose. Well, look, it's not a secret that I hope it's Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, whenever I say that, I have to say full disclosure, my husband consulted on the Warren campaign. When I say that, people seem to think that Warren has paid my family millions of dollars, which is (laughs) actually not the case. But, you know, and I would say that my husband consulted for Warren because we support her, not vice versa. But, um, you know, she was my choice for president. I think that she would make by far the best vice president, um, both for political and substantive reasons. I mean, politically, I think, you know, you do still have some, you know, kind of lack of energy among the disappointed left and, you know, a need to turn out young people. And in all the polls, Warren is the one who does that, you know, even though if you look on Twitter, you'll see a lot of hostility between Warren supporters and Bernie supporters. When you poll Bernie supporters, Warren is the one who they think should be is the one that is the one that they want. So I think she would be a good pick politically. And I also just think that given the fact that this country is going to be a smoking wreck by the time, um, you know, inshallah, Joe Biden takes it over. You sort of need somebody with 
a huge amount of administrative capacity and who sort of understands where the levers are to get things done in a system with a lot of choke points and gridlock. You know, I've written before, I've, I've used the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau when my bank screwed me and it was like the most seamless government experience I've ever had in my life. So I just think, you know, if you are thinking about all of these intersecting crises that we're going to be facing, you know, she's the one that I want in there. Um, and, 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 what Michelle, are, and what are your Michelle, responses the, to the, the answer? The question, Michelle, the question was about Tammy Duckworth. <laughs> no, but he also asked who I wanted. Right. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> look, I mean, I, there, it's you know, that said, I all of the people who've been floated, I would be happy with. I think, you know, I think Tammy Duckworth. Look, Tammy Duckworth is maybe a little bit more conservative than me. I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting watching Joe Biden is that something that almost never happens is that you win the nomination and then pivot to the left. But that's kind of what Biden has done. And so I think Duckworth would be assigned to people that he was maybe, you know, kind of moving back to the center. Right. She's, you know, for example, not a proponent of of Medicare for all. But look, I think, you know, she obviously she's obviously an extremely impressive, charismatic person. She is, you know, the one thing I really disagree with my colleague Frank about is that Frank thinks that the Republicans would have a hard time impugning her patriotism. I mean, they, sh you know, and, and justifiably they should. Right. She's a, a war hero. But anyone rem I mean, look, anyone remember Max the Cleland. name Max Cleland? Yes, exactly. Look what they did to Max Cleland. I mean, look what they did to, to John Kerry. Right. So I don't I think it's not a good idea to choose somebody as as your candidate because you think that they're somehow going to be immune to certain right wing attacks. Right. Because there's there's no bottom to Republican shamelessness. Um, one of the can I just say one thing? Yeah, one of, yeah. You know, honestly, the thing that, that most shocked me about our interview is that this is a, a senator. This is somebody who's being vetted to be the vice president of the United States. And she told me that she is still in charge of most of the homeschooling of their small children. Well, that is impressive. And, uh, you know, look, uh, the way things are going, we're all going to be doing homeschooling of our kids uh, for quite some time, given that it doesn't look like schools are going to be opening. But anyway, Michelle, hey, thanks a lot. There's no better chronicler of what you called Republican shamelessness than uh, than you in The New York oh, Times. Thank you. Um, so thanks for coming on. And uh, we will be reading your columns. Thank you so much. Thanks to Yahoo News contributor Zach Dorfman and New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.